Let's now turn in our books of praise to Lord's Day 44, the last of the Ten Commandments and kind of the conclusion to the Ten Commandments. Question 113, what does the Tenth Commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we, be, we may become more and more aware of our sinful nature. And therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. Beloved in the Lord, in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Shredder, Eustace is the grumpy companion of Edmund and Lucy, brought unwillingly onto an ocean voyage in the world of Narnia. And at one point on that voyage, Eustace is changed into a dragon because his dragon-like lust for gold ends up transforming his outer appearance. Then Aslan, the lion, a Christ-like figure, comes into the story and tells Eustace, you need to peel off your skin. You know, lizards will shed their skin, and so dragons shed their skin as well. So Aslan tells him to peel off his skin. And Eustace begins to take off his skin, and there's another layer of skin underneath. Then he takes off that layer, and there's another layer. And then he begins to take off multiple layers, and there's still more layers underneath. Then Aslan jumps on him and begins to tear out of his skin big chunks until he becomes a boy again. And here we have a unique picture that Lewis brought up of the work of God, the work of regeneration. We try to remove sin from our lives. And we take off a layer and we find another layer underneath. The only way to effectively mortify sin, to, to put to death that sin, is to rely on the grace of God and His Holy Spirit. It is in God that we never stop striving to be renewed more and more in God's image. God, I've used this image a number of times, God's doing surgery on us. 
I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, train all your desires to submit to God. First, we'll seek to recognize wicked desire. Second, you're called to recognize that small beginning of righteousness that the Spirit is working in your life. And second, you must recognize your continued need for word and spirit. The Tenth Commandment warns against coveting the false desires for things that do not or do not yet belong to you. For some reason, the Catechism doesn't even mention coveting, but warns instead that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. How does the Catechism go from coveting your neighbor's house and your neighbor's wife to this? For that, we need to understand Eve's sin in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3. Eve's temptation begins with a temptation to question God. Did God really say? And it goes next to looking at and desiring the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good, of good and evil. And of course, Satan's little twisting of the truth, the desire to be like God through the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. At heart, the catechism knows that man is an imitating being. We imitate. Think of how a small child learns. He or she learns through imitating his or her parents. It's how we learn language. We repeat words after our parents until we figure out how they fit into the way we communicate with one another. And it goes a lot farther than that. Children will play at being mom and dad. They'll play pretending to have mom and dad's jobs. The problem comes when children want to do something they are not ready for yet say, drive a car or use a power tool. Mom and dad clearly say no because the children may hurt themselves in using that tool or vehicle. They care for their children and so they fence off those things from their children until they grow into them. If an eight-year-old decides to drive the family car, that can create, they can really hurt themselves. God is doing something similar in guarding the, true, the tree of the, of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. The fruit of this tree is not in itself bad because God created. And in fact, later in Scripture, God will grant Solomon the knowledge of good and evil when he asks God for it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is fenced off from Adam and Eve because they are not ready to use it yet. Further, just like a child 
is to be like his parents, wants to be like his parents. God wants Adam and Eve to be like him as well. He has created them in his image, in his likeness. This image and likeness is not merely something they are. It's something they grow into, like a son and his father. It's good for Adam and Eve to want to be like God. But in that, they must obey him. His commandments are to train Adam and Eve in being proper sons and daughters of God. But in Adam and Eve's covetousness, they disobey the command of God. Satan tells them they will be like God if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in a certain sense, that's true. God tells his court later in Genesis 3 that they have become like God. The lie is that Adam and Eve will not die. In their covetousness, they have not only said, I want to be like God, they have said, I want to be God. I want to be the one who makes the rules. I want to be the father, the source of creation. And they cannot be God because God is something completely other than the creation that he has made. They, right from the beginning, we might say they have lost what we call in theology the creator-creature distinction. They want to be God. And that's ultimately what it is to disobey the commandments of God. You are saying to your creator, the one who made you and formed you, I want to be the rule maker. I want to be the one to decide where the fences go in my life. If you have a thought contrary to the commandments of God, you are saying, I know better than God. Again, I want to be God. And of course, knowing original sin, we can see the same thing in children. Children don't want you to be the parent. They want to be the parent. They want to be the decision makers in their life. That's the basic root of covetousness. Our covetousness of God and his role as creator and father. When we have sex before marriage, we are saying, I want to use my body in my way. I am the arbiter of my fate. When we covet our neighbor's house, we are saying, I want to have his house, not the house that God has given me. And behind all this is a fundamental attitude of ingratitude, right? We think of the third part. The third part of the catechism is our gratitude toward God. That means that everything that disobeys that part of of the uh, catechism is ingratitude. Disobedience is ingratitude. God gave Adam and, Adam and Eve all these gifts, and they threw them away. They despised them. I am ungrateful for the situation given to me. 
I am ungrateful for the body given to me, for the spouse that is given to me. And the list goes on and on. God has given me these good things. I misuse them for the sake of my own glory. Instead, the Catechism says, as a Christian with a renewed relationship with my Father in heaven, I am called to hate all sin and love all righteousness. That brings us to our second point, recognizing our small beginning in righteousness. The natural question to follow this is, can I do this? Can I keep all God's commands perfectly through his spirit? We all know the sins in our lives. We hear the command to hate all sin, and we ask, do I really hate that my neighbor is divorcing her husband over, well, not really that much? We don't hate our neighbor herself, of course. We continue to offer her the grace of God, but we should, as Christians, hate the destruction that she is bringing into her family. We hate the hurt that she is causing And we hate the fact that she counts herself as the arbiter of her own life. What about my friend who is going down the path of alcoholism? Do I hate the fact that he misuses his body in these ways? Do I hate the destruction he brings to himself and others? Again, I don't hate him. I don't hate the created person in the image of God. I hate that he is becoming a sinner, that he is walking down the path of wickedness. I want him to be restored to Jesus Christ. I hate the fact that he has decided to live as his own God, not as a son of God. And most importantly, do I hate the sins that crop up in my own life? God will judge my neighbor, not me. Do I hate my laziness, my temper, my wandering eyes? And love righteousness. I can't even hate sin properly. How can I love righteousness? The Catechism gives the sobering answer. Even the holiest have a small beginning, only a small beginning of the righteousness that God calls us to. And our experience tells us this is true. It humbles us to realize who we truly are. Even when we conquer a particular sin, God will reveal another sin behind that sin. Like Eustace shedding layers of scaly dragon skin only to find another layer underneath. That's a sobering reality. But that's not what the Catechism wants us to focus on. God teaches us. He saves us for joy, for freedom. That's certainly what God, God doesn't want us to focus on that. God wants us to focus on the freedom that we have in Christ. Recognize that sin, humble yourself before God, and look to the freedom I have in Christ. I have been saved, I have been justified, I have been sanctified. That means I am able to begin to live not only to some, but according to all the commandments of God. I am free to do that. 
It begins with receiving in thanksgiving all that God has given me. Again, think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They did not receive the gifts of God with thanksgiving. They demanded more. That's why I read from 1 Corinthians 7. Paul, in the middle of a discussion on marriage and sexual desire, brings out the call to remain as you are. It's definitely not a message we like to hear today. We like to hear, I can be anything. I am the master of my own destiny. Paul is instead saying, recognize the context that God has put you in and use that well. That's proper thanksgiving. That is proper contentment. That's a proper attitude of thanksgiving for what God has given me right here, right now. The point here is not that you can't start new projects. You can't choose a career you like. And we need to remember we are blessed today in that way. Young people back then probably didn't have the same choice that we have. The point is, don't try to change who you are, accepting, of course, those things that are sinful. Instead, be grateful. People try to change their bodies so that they can have a better body image, to the point that they ruin their bodies. For some reason, you often get the feeling today that some white people want to be black and some black people want to be white. Children want to be adults, and adults want to be children. Authorities refuse responsibility, and fools grasp for authority that has not been given to them. Paul is saying, be thankful for who you are and where you are. Do not obsess over what you could possibly be. Do not obsess over being someone else. The most important point is thanksgiving and gratitude for what God has given you now. God is using you in whatever area of life you are for his glory. From all eternity, God has decided that you would be born into an ethnically Dutch family, for many of you. Part of a Canadian Reformed church in the province of Manitoba to work as a teacher or an engineer or a farmer, to be a husband of so-and-so or a wife of so-and-so, or the daughter, son, within this family. Just as God planted Adam and Eve in the garden, so he has planted you here. Give God thanksgiving for what he has given you and use it well to his glory. Some things are less clear. We may pursue wealth. Poor people may seek to become rich, as long as that doesn't take over their entire life. It's certainly too foolish to do so through the lottery. Where does investment in the stock market come in? Certainly some attitudes toward these things are filled with the folly of covetousness and ingratitude. Likewise, with career changes, you may change a career given the opportunity. You may move given the opportunity. But you hurt your family, your community, and yourself if you're always trying to be something else. That's the point. 
beginning with gratitude, who you are and where you are. God does give opportunities. Adam and Eve were not to stay in the garden. When they were ready, God would be with them in coming out of the garden, taking dominion over the rest of the earth. Now imagine especially that that second part of 1 Corinthians 7, the part of, about slaves, bondsmen. Imagine you're a slave in Corinth and you hear this. You really have no control over your fate. And Paul says, be content with your lot. Yes, if you have an opportunity for freedom, take it, but do not force your way into freedom. There are a number of places in Scripture already in the Old Testament where we can see that the institution of slavery was not God's intention for those who bear His image. And yet Paul says, you can do more to change the world by approaching your state, however unjust it is, with thanksgiving. We need to think about that when we find ourselves in what we consider unjust institutions or unjust situations. We're called to approach God with thanksgiving. And when God gives the opportunity for change, we are free to take it. This is the beginning of obeying all the commandments of God, contentment and gratitude with his providence in your life. And to continue in that contentment and gratitude when God brings in the winds of change. Even though it's only a small beginning, as the catechism says, it's a real beginning. With earnest purpose, you do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. That's why Paul can expect that the Corinthians will hear him when he tells them, remain as you are, to be thankful in the life that God has called them to. That contentment comes from the knowledge of who I am in Christ. I have Christ's righteousness. It's the work of the resurrection power of Jesus. And his resurrection is working in our hearts so that we become changed men and women. So that we, who whined and complained about God's provision in the wilderness, become men and women who continue to praise God when hard times come. Brings us to our third point, recognizing our need for the word and spirit. If, as the catechism says, we only have a small beginning of the righteousness he calls us to, why do we want the commandments so strictly preached? The answer is that God is using the strictness of his commandments for that small beginning. To go back to the example of Eustace pulling off his dragon skin, Eustace wasn't really able to dig deep enough. He made himself a bit itchy, but that was all. When Aslan the lion took over, the claws went in deep it really began to hurt. This is a good picture of the Word of God, which we know from the Scriptures. It's like a two-edged sword that pierces and divides. 
God justifies, we're brought into Christ, and in Christ, he regenerates. He regenerates through the word and through the spirit. Through Christ's resurrection, he justifies. Through the spirit that is sent out from Christ's side, he regenerates. And he uses his word, his word preached, his word read. He uses his word for that. It pierces us. If we're listening on Sundays, particularly if we're, we're listening to the Ten Commandments, it hurts. We see our hatred of our brother and our lack of forgiveness. We see our lust, our lack of love for our wives and husbands. We see the lies and the stealing that have become a part of our life. And most importantly, we see the lack of thanksgiving for the good things that God has given us. We need the word of God. It's depiction of sin and it's depiction of righteousness. We need the piercing of his sword so that our hearts are moved to understand and to hate our sin and to seek forgiveness of those sins. But war to put on the righteousness of Christ, his love, his forgiveness, his willing obedience to God in his calling. That's where the strict preaching of the commandments give us hope. God does not will that his word be preached strictly so that we will despair. He commands because he believes that in Christ and through Christ, we can cheerfully and willingly obey these commands. He has freed us from sin so that we can do that. And he gives us his spirit. For the same purpose. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We pray, as the Catechism says, for the Holy Spirit constantly. The Word calls us to do that, and the Spirit renews us more and more into God's image. We strive for that every day. That's why the Bible teaches us that life on this side of heaven is war, war with sin. That's why the Bible teaches us that we're not truly at home here. We're still struggling until, after this life, we reach the goal of perfection. The Lion of Judah wrestles with us. It's painful, but after this life, and especially after the resurrection, we come out whole, clean, perfect, without sin, there's nothing of the dragon left in us. That's why we never stop praying for the grace of the Holy Spirit. We are striving for that world. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the freedom and the will to do this work. It's our work. It's his work in us. It's his energy the word comes to us, it pierces us, and God renews us through his Holy Spirit. And that second part, of course, is beautifully pictured in the Lord's Supper, where we feed on Christ through the Spirit, and so are renewed more and more into his image. God does surgery on us in the word, and sews us up back together in the supper. In order to make that beginning of obedience, 
God gives us word and spirit. The Christian's life is like that of Jacob wrestling with God at Peniel. You know that story. Jacob was about to meet Esau, and then he meets this man at Peniel, and they wrestle through the night. Aslan wrestling with Eustace is just another picture of that. That wrestling is a picture of Jacob's whole life, his struggle with his father, with his brother Esau, and with his uncle Laban. Ultimately, he was wrestling with God. And that wrestling is a picture of our lives. We wrestle with our families, with our church, with the situations God puts us into us. But ultimately, we're wrestling with God. In order to engage in that, in order to be overcomers, Israel's, the one who overcomes, we need the commandments to be fiercely preached. We want to hate wickedness and love righteousness. And the most important gift that God has given us in this is prayer. That brings us nicely into the next section of the catechism. We'll be studying that in the next Sundays. We call out to God to make us vessels of the love of Jesus Christ. He gives us the good works we are foreordained to do. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing in response from Psalm 62, verses 1, 4, 6, and 7.